Well, this morning we get to dive back into the book of Romans together. And uh, this text that um, we're going to be studying this morning, Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14, is a text that I've been anticipating for several months now uh, as I've been reading ahead and thinking about how this would kind of play itself out over the, uh, the, the weeks to come. Um, this is uh, just one of those texts where um, some of the most significant themes in the New Testament all converge at one point, and um, we're all kind of watching these uh, hurricanes developing, right, and they're not quite sure what's going to happen, these two hurricanes coming together in the Gulf Coast, and uh, nobody's quite sure what's going to come of it, and I kind of feel that way this morning about this sermon. <laughs> I feel like all these themes are coming together uh, in these four verses, and um, I, I just, uh, I'm not quite sure how it's going to come out, but I just get the sense that it's going to be powerful, and uh, people's lives will be impacted because you can't read the truths we're about to read and not uh, have your conscience pricked and uh, your heart challenged. And so Romans chapter 13, verse 11, you can follow along as I read, Paul writes, do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near, therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Father, this is a chunky portion of your word. It's, it's a potent passage. Um, Lord, I just know how you've been using it in my life um, in preparation for this message, and I pray that you would use it in the lives of the hearers, the hearts of the hearers this morning. Lord, would you comfort those who are disturbed, and would you disturb those who are comfortable so that this text would have its intended impact in our lives so that we could be more of who you want us to be, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, when you consider all the things that have been happening in our country and around the world, just in the first half of 2020, anyone with even a minimal level of spiritual discernment can sense that the return of Christ is approaching fast, amen? Uh, recent events seem apocalyptic in nature, and they make it appear that we are living in the end times, or what the Bible refers to as the last days. The Old Testament prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Micah, Hosea, all talked about the last days. Uh, the New Testament apostles like Paul, Peter, James, uh, they also mentioned the last days. Peter and his uh, inaugural sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.17 quotes the prophet Joel and says that it shall be in the last days that God says I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. Second Timothy chapter three verse one, Paul writes, but realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter one verse two, in these last days God has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. James 5.3, your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. And then 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lusts. And so this phrase, the last days, is a significant one in scripture, and it refers specifically to the present era of redemptive history from the first coming of Christ to his return. 
And so if you've lived, any, anybody that's lived between the first coming of Christ and till the future coming of Christ can say that they are living in the last days, including Jesus' original disciples. They were living in the last days. Um, the last days began when Christ came the first time and they will come to a climax at the next great event in God's kingdom plan, which is the second coming of Christ. In other words, there's nothing else we're waiting for but for Jesus to come back. That, that's the next stop. And, uh, and we know that because after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended back to heaven, two angels appeared to his disciples and declared that he would come back in the same way that he went into heaven. And ever since that moment, followers of Christ have lived in the anticipation of his return. And in every period of church history, there, there have been events and situations which seem to indicate that the end was near. The saints in every generation, including ours, have thought that Jesus would come back in their lifetime. When you read the New Testament, it's clear that the believers in those days expected Christ to come back before they died. For example, when Paul instructed the Thessalonians about the rapture, he included himself in it. You may be familiar with this text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Paul says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who have died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we shall always be with the Lord. Paul lived in anticipation of the Lord's return. He believed that the Lord would come back before he died. He wasn't looking uh, for his death. He was looking for the rapture. And it's from texts like these that we derive the extremely relevant doctrine of what we call the imminence of Christ's return or the imminency of Christ's return, which simply means that Christ could return at any moment. He could come back this year. He could come back this month. He could come back this morning. Do you believe that? That is sound doctrine. That's part of what we hold true as we consider the doctrines of God's word. Someone has written it this way. Quote, we do not know and cannot know the hour of Christ's coming, but we know that it is some 2,000 years closer than when Paul wrote his letter to Rome. We do not know how much sand remains in the top of the Lord's hourglass of human history as we know it, but there is abundant evidence that not much time is left. We know that we are nearer to the coming of our Lord than any other generation in history. Every day we live, we come one day closer to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I ask you a question as we start this morning. If you knew that Jesus was coming back this next month, how would that change the way that you're living right now? If that thought scares you, or if, you would, if, it, if it would require that you make radical changes in your life, that that's indicates that, that you know your life is not where it needs to be right now. You know your life is not pleasing to the Lord. There's a, there's a reason why Paul and the other apostles frequently used the prospect of the Lord's imminent return to motivate believers to live a pure and holy life. Look with, with me at a couple of passages just quickly. Titus chapter two, verse 11 For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope 
which is a reference to the coming of Christ and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus who gave himself up for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Again, do you see how Paul was exhorting Titus to live a pure and holy life and to deny ungodliness in light of the future coming of Christ? How about the writer of Hebrews? We're familiar with this Passage, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, Christ could come back any, at any moment and you don't want to be caught missing in action. In other words, where's so-and-so? They're not, they're not at church. They're not a part of the body of Christ. They're just out drifting, doing their own thing. I love what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's referring to Christ's second coming. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in your behavior, in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We just got done singing that song, holy, 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 right, is the Lord God Almighty. God wants us to be holy like he is holy, and Peter used the, the, the coming of Christ as an incentive to uh, pursue holiness. Look at Second Peter, Second Peter chapter three, and this is in the context of those scoffers in the last day who are like, you know what? It's been it's been two thousand years. They said Jesus said he's coming back. Yeah, right. I got time. I can continue to mess around and do what I want to do. So Peter says this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, i.e. the return of Christ, because of, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements which, which will melt with with intense heat, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Notice here what he says, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, and blameless. And maybe the, the text we're most familiar with when it comes to the second coming of Christ providing incentive to live a holy and pure life is 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, with that as our foundation, let's go back to Romans chapter 13, where Paul never specifically mentioned the Lord's return, but it is obviously implied by the words and, and images that he used in these four verses. And what I want us to see this morning, and the way I've, I, I've outlined this text for us, is that Paul here provided three alarming admonitions Three alarming admonitions in order to confront any apathy, any inactivity or immorality in our lives and to motivate us to live zealous, diligent, blameless lives in light of the fact that Jesus could come back at any moment. What are these three alarming admonitions? Well, they're very short and to the point. Wake up, clean up, and suit up. Wake up clean up and suit up. And as you can see, these three admonitions follow the natural progression that we go through 
every morning as we prepare for the day, right? You wake up, you get cleaned up, you get dressed, and you go about your day. And so let's look at these, these three admonitions that Paul gives here. Number one, he calls us to wake up, to wake up. Verse 11, do this knowing the time that it is already knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. The night is almost gone and the day is near. That first phrase, do this, I think Paul was referring back to what he had just said about being submissive to those above you and loving those around you. You're like, do this, do what? Well, be good citizens, be good neighbors, which, by the way, is all part of being a living and holy sacrifice who's pleasing and acceptable to God, who doesn't think more highly of yourself than you should, who exercises your spiritual gifts, who loves the brethren, who practices hospitality, never seeks revenge, and always overcomes evil with good, which is basically a summary of everything he said so far, starting in chapter 12, verse 1. And so when he says, do this, I think it could be all of that. Everything I've just got done saying, do that. Knowing the time. And the word time there that Paul used in the original isn't chronos, which is one of the Greek words for time, which is where we get the word chronology, right? This is the word kairos. And so the, the point here is that Paul wasn't talking about time in a chronological sense, but a qualitative sense. In other words, he's talking about, not saying, hey, it's seven o'clock, It's like, hey, what happens at seven o'clock? Man, it is time to wake up. So in other words, it's the season, it's the period, it's the era, it's the age in which we live. And so Paul wasn't thinking about some future time necessarily when Christ will return, but the present time in which we live that will quickly come to an end when Christ does return. And so as one uh, commentator put it, Paul was not wanting us to look prophetically at the future in light of the present. He was wanting us to look practically at the present in light of the future. And I say that because most preaching today on the end times focuses on prophetic events. So, hey, let's get in the book of Revelation. Let's study about what's going to happen and what's the next event and this is going to happen and this is going to happen and this is going to happen and we just chalk full, we get all excited about these, about these uh, you know, the signs of the times. But very little emphasis is made on the personal conduct of a believer's life in view of Christ's imminent return. And that's why, frankly, I don't like to get into really in-depth conversations about all the details of the second coming, I just want people to know, listen, Jesus is coming back and you need to be ready. That's all you need to know. And emphasis on the be ready part. And, and really, that's what this passage is all about. There's a couple passages, um, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, that give us some insight into this phrase, knowing the time. Um, some of you may remember 1 Chronicles 12.32 when uh, various people were coming to David when he, was, um, when he was the king and there was a division in the kingdom but they were siding with David and it says this, 1 Chronicles 12.32, the men of Issachar had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. And so they were discerning in other words. Um, Matthew 16, Jesus uses an interesting word picture to confront the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, the Sadducees. They came up testing Jesus. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And this is what Jesus said. This is Matthew 16, 2. When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. That's the old red skies at night, sailors delight, right? Red skies in morning, sailors take warning. Um, My dad was in the Navy. Maybe that's how I knew that, right? But um, that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. But notice what he says. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky but cannot discern the signs of the times? In other words, you guys are, you're asking for a sign. Hey, I'm standing right in front of you. 
What more sign do you want? So they, they were oblivious to uh, and lacked true spiritual discernment. And these were the spiritual leaders in that day. So what are we to know? He says, do this knowing the time. Well, what time? That it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. Sleep in this context represents spiritual apathy or indifference or laziness or inactivity. And uh, this is a a familiar imagery that uh, both Jesus and and Paul used in their teaching the, the idea of dozing off or falling asleep. And uh, there's a number of, of parables that I'm sure you're aware of about the, the second coming of Christ and to not be caught sleeping uh, is what Jesus essentially said. This is Matthew chapter 24, verse 42. Therefore be on the alert for, do not, do not know, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming, but be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. And then in the very next chapter, Uh, Matthew 25, Jesus tells the parable of the 10 virgins. Uh, Five of them were uh, foolish and five of them were prudent. Um, It says, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout, behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lips, excuse me, their lamps, The foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, no, there will be not enough for us. And you too go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make up the purchase, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with them to the wedding feast and the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. But so this is the point, be on the alert then for you do not know the day nor the hour. In other words, don't be caught Sleeping. And that's what happens. It's like, hey, you know what? The Lord's coming back. Yeah, but you know, it's been 2,000 years and you kind of just kind of get drowsy and sleepy and uh, apathetic in your spiritual walk. Mark 13, another reference to this Mark chapter 13, verse 28, talking about the return of Christ Now learn the parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves. You know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. He says, take heed. Be on the alert for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Paul says in Ephesians 5.14, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. He's quoting Isaiah 60 there. 1 Thessalonians 5.6, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. And of course, you remember the disciples, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus invited them to pray with him and rather than praying, they did what? They fell asleep. And so as a result, they were unprepared when the mob came to arrest Jesus. They all eventually fled. And I think Peter may have had that occasion in mind when he wrote later on in 1 Peter 5.8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The point here is that it's easy to get comfortable, it's easy to get lackadaisical in our Christian lives, and so Paul was wanting to arouse us from spiritual lethargy so that we would live urgently and vigilantly and industriously. Why? Notice it says, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. You say, wait a minute, I thought I already was saved. Well, you are. 
And this is another reminder that salvation in the New Testament, that term is comprehensive. It includes our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. In other words, there's a past, present, and future aspect of our salvation. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. And someday we will be saved from the presence of sin. And so Paul wasn't referring here to our initial conversion. He's talking about our, the final consummation of our salvation when we'll finally be glorified and conformed to the likeness of Christ. And he's been referencing this throughout his letter. Um, in Romans chapter five, you may remember, he says, um, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. You're like, wait a minute, I thought I was saved from the wrath of God. Well, the wrath of God hasn't come yet, right? When it comes, you'll, you'll be saved from that. Um, he also mentions in, in Romans 8, uh, 23, uh, even we ourselves groan with our, within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And this is when uh, we who have been foreknown will be ultimately predestined, right? We've been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's when that will happen um, when the Lord returns. Philippians chapter three, uh, verses 20 and 21. I told you that there was these themes converging from all over scripture. That's why there's so many cross-references this morning. Philippians chapter three, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly await for a savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he is even to subject all things to himself. That's the That's the salvation, if you will, that aspect, our glorification, that is nearer to us than when we believed. In Luke 21, Jesus said, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, but when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Again, I love that, that that expression. Straighten up, sit up, class, right? And crane your neck, right, to see he's coming any, any second now, right? And he goes on to say here in verse 12, the night is almost gone and the day is near. Now again, night and day are used um, uh, as vivid analogies throughout the scriptures. The night refers to the present state of our world, which is corrupted by man's depravity and is controlled by Satan's authority, a delegated authority, but it's authority nonetheless. Whereas the day refers to the future return and reign of Christ, which is pictured in the scriptures as the dawning of a new day. And so he says, hey, listen, the, the, the night is almost gone. The, the world as we know it is, is about to, to, to pass away and there's a new day dawning when the Lord returns. And so Paul's point is, hey, we need to wake up to the reality that every day we pitch our tent a little closer to heaven. And we are one day, today, today, we are one day closer to seeing Christ face to face when he comes or when he calls us home. And so, beloved, wake up. Wake up. Number two, clean up. Clean up. Hopefully you're awake now. Now it's time to clean up. Notice what he says in verse 12. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. So Paul was admonishing the believers in Rome and us, let's not forget us here, right, to repent or to turn away from our sin, to give up our sinful idols and habits, to stop living a worldly life. And again, Paul often mentioned this or gave this exhortation, this command to lay aside things. Ephesians 4.22, in reference to your former manner of life, you need to lay aside the old self, 
which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of the sea. Colossians chapter three, verse eight, but now you also put them all aside. Put what all aside? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Hebrews 12, one, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. James 1.21, putting aside all filthiness and all, the, all that remains of wickedness. First Peter chapter two, verse one, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. That's what Paul meant when he said, lay aside the deeds of darkness. Sin is often equated with darkness. Again, we don't have time to, to look at all these references, but uh, you can just look through the Gospel of John and uh, the sinful world in which we live is just, is just equated to darkness. And I find it interesting that sin is often committed under the cover of darkness since it's more likely to go unnoticed. In other words, sin is easier to get away with at night for the most part. And that's why a lot of crimes, right, are, are committed at night. In contrast, righteous living, which results from believing in Jesus and following Jesus, is often referred to in Scripture as being in the light. You go from darkness to light. Maybe just um, Ephesians chapter 5 would be a Maybe just one reference we could look at among many, but Ephesians chapter five, verse seven. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, the disobedient people of the world, for you were formerly darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they're exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. And again, we already read this, for this reason I say, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. I love what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that we have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. But notice, not only are we to lay aside the deeds of darkness, we are to put on the armor of light. We're to put on the armor of light. And you know one of Paul's favorite analogies of a believer is that of a soldier. Second Timothy chapter two, verse three, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of every, everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Paul had lots of exposure to Roman soldiers, including being guarded by and possibly even chained to one while he wrote a number of his letters to the churches. And so I think this is where he came up with this analogy where he likened the various pieces of armor that a Roman soldier wore to the virtues that should characterize the life of every believer. And uh, the, the main text where he outlines this and describes this armor is in Ephesians chapter six. He says to put on the full armor of God. This is verse 11. And then verse 13, therefore take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm, stand firm therefore, here he goes, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace in addition to all taking up the shield of faith which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. He gave another little list, a much shorter list in 1 Thessalonians chapter five, verse eight, but since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. And so we're to lay aside the deeds of darkness, we're to put on, replace them with the armor of, of light 
And essentially what he's saying here, what does that look like practically? Let us behave properly as in the day. In other words, he's telling us to live a life that's above reproach. In other words, not a shameful life that is filled with all sorts of sin, but a life that's blameless. In other words, we're, ha- we're, we're to have nothing to do with the sinful practices and patterns of unbelievers who remain in the darkness. We're to behave differently. We shouldn't blend into the world. We shouldn't think like the world or act like the world or look like the world in any way. We already learned in chapter 12, verse two, we're not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so Paul listed here, some specific sins that characterize the lives of unbelievers, those who are still in darkness. Notice he says, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness. That that word carousing was used um, of military or athletic victory celebrations, which frequently turned into a drunken orgy. Uh, it came to be used of any kind of wild partying, partying or brawling or fighting uh, and even sometimes rioting. So he says, don't, don't carouse, don't get drunk. He says, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. That word sexual promiscuity simply is translated bed or bedroom but has the connotation of going to bed with someone or sleeping with someone. Hebrews 13.4 says marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. The word sensuality there refers to shameless excess and, and an absence of restraint. In other words, people are uninhibited and unabashed in their sexual immorality, which really is a characteristic of our sex-crazed, sex-saturated society, right, in which we live, where people think it's okay to have sex with anyone, anywhere, at any time. In, in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, Paul said this, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel, his own body, in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. So avoid carousing and drunkenness, sexual promiscuity and sensuality, but then notice also lastly, the last couplet here, not in strife and jealousy. He's talking about conflict here. He's talking about contention. He's talking about bickering and angry arguments. Everything we've seen in the news, right? Between political parties and different races and the police and the protesters and just that, that, all that, not, not in strife, nor jealousy, which is typically what causes strife. This selfish, jealous desire, thoughts, motives. I think it's interesting that these are the two sins, strife and jealousy, that were responsible for the division among the believers in Corinth, which you know that church was divided in all sorts of ways. And Paul wrote to confront that division. And he says in 1 Corinthians 3.3, 3, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, Are you not fleshly? I mean, you guys are living in the flesh. James 3.16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. None of these sins that Paul mentions here have any place in our lives as Christians. You can find another uh, list In Galatians chapter five, if that wasn't enough, Paul just just throws it all out in Galatians chapter five, verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, these are characteristic of unbelievers. 
If that is the pattern of your life, then it's evidence that you're not saved. And if you are saved, then you've had plenty of time to get your fill of those sins before you got saved. Then it's time to move on. That's what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men but for the will of God. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. In other words, you've had plenty of time to sin already. Having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries, in all this, they're surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. In other words, you went from doing those things and maligning those that didn't to now you don't do those things and you're getting maligned because of it. The tables have turned now. Again, the point is we should live our lives in such a way that we have absolutely nothing to be ashamed of if Christ were were to return at any moment. And guess what? He could and he might. My dad was a traveling salesman when I was a little kid, and so he would leave Monday morning and be gone all week and come back Friday afternoon. And my mom was left to deal with me. And uh, when she comes back from Maine, you can ask her what that might have been like, okay? But she's told me that if I was the first child, she would have never had a second one, okay? But anyway, when I was, uh, so I would, you know, when daddy was away, right, I would give my mom all sorts of guff. But I knew about the time when my dad was coming home. And by the way, these were the days before you had cell phones and, you know, find friends and Life360 where you kind of track where the people are and how long you got to sin before they get home kind of thing. I mean, they could come home at any minute. I just, you kind of knew it was about that time. Sometime Friday afternoon, it could be early afternoon or later in the afternoon. You just never knew. But man, you, got to start, you started cleaning up your act about Friday noontime. Because daddy was coming home and I was always going to be on my best behavior. When I saw that car drive in, man, I would be on my best behavior. I'd be setting the table for dinner. I'd be running out to grab my dad's suitcase and bring it in. Hey, dad, how's it? Right? Because I I didn't want to be ashamed. I didn't want to be punished. I didn't want to get spanked (laughs) when I got home. Uh, When my dad got home, which oftentimes happened because my mom would tell him what I did during the week. So even though I was on my best behavior when he got home, I was... Making up, he was making up for lost time, right, when, when he finally got home. But 1 John 2.28, now little children abide in him, abide in Christ, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. And I think that is the key right there, which leads us to our final admonition here, that phrase, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, you can have confidence and not shrink away from him. What's the key? What's the secret to be ready for the Lord's imminent return? In other words, he can come back at any time and it'd be all right. The verse says, abide in him. In other words, maintain an intimate walk with him. Spend time with him in his word and in prayer and around his people and his church. Telling others about him. Those are all ways that we abide in Christ. And if we abide in him, we got nothing to be afraid of. In fact, we can just get excited. All, all that's left is the fear goes, is, is completely replaced with excitement and anticipation and expectation. So the last admonition here, not only are we to, to wake up, not only do we need to clean up, but now we need to suit up. We need to suit up. Notice verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. This final admonition points us to Christ as the means to live out the previous two admonitions. 
In other words, we can't wake up and clean up or do anything for that matter apart from Christ and relying on his grace and on his power that he grants us through his Holy Spirit. I mean, this right here, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ is the secret to living the pure and holy life that Paul is exhorting us to live in light of the imminent return of Christ. So what does it mean to put on the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I think this phrase is a simple summary of sanctification, which is the ongoing process or work of the Spirit in the life of every Christian as he causes us to grow and mature and conforms us more and more into the image of Jesus so that we live like he lived and we talk like he talks and uh, act like he uh, acts and thinks like he thinks and smells like he smells. And the point is we, 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 we need to put on Christ. Now, for those of you that know your Bibles, you're like, hey, time out. I thought we already put on Christ when we got saved. You're right. We, we put on Christ once and for all the moment we get saved or when we're justified. Galatians chapter three, verse 27, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have closed yourself with Christ. But as part of our sanctification process, which is separate from our justification, right? Nothing that happens in our sanctification uh, has anything to do with our justification. We are in right standing before God the moment we get saved, but now we get to grow and mature and match up our life with who we are in, in, in heaven, in God's eyes. So as part of our sanctification process, we must continually and practically put on Christ on a daily basis. Ephesians 4.24, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. You say, well, what does that look like practically? Well, I think Colossians is helpful. Colossians chapter three, verse 10. Colossians chapter three, verse 10. Listen to how Paul describes the sanctification process. And have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. In other words, we'll be growing into the image of Christ. Verse 12, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful that the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So putting on the Lord Jesus Christ is really putting on his character, putting on his attributes, his personality qualities, if you will, or qualities that we know to be true. So how do I know what Jesus is like? Well, study the Gospels. And you can see that he's all these things that Paul described here. And we need to let the word of Christ richly dwell within us. What is that? That's the word of God. You want to put on Christ? You, you get the Bible out every morning and you, you, you read about Jesus and you read the scriptures and you ask the Lord to conform you to what you're reading to make it a part of your life, to make him a part of your life. Just like you put on clothes in the morning, you put on clothes to make yourself presentable for the day. You put on Jesus at the beginning of the day to make yourself presentable and he's a part of your life and he goes with you wherever you go and he acts through you in everything you do. But there's more. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and... Make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. I think this is one of the most practical principles in all of the New Testament when it comes to battling sin and temptation. He says, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. That word no provision literally means no forethought. And, and we know forethought means to think about something in advance or to plan something in advance. And so Paul says, hey, don't think about sin in advance. Don't, don't plan out sin in advance. 
Don't give it any forethought. I mean, there are times when we're caught off guard by temptation and we could say we stumble into sin and we're still guilty, of course, but, but it wasn't something we planned on. But most of the time, I, I hope you would agree with this, that our sin is premeditated. We've thought about it before it happened. James 1:14, but each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. There's a premeditated process. And so even though we've been delivered from the penalty of sin, as long as we are in our mortal bodies, we will still experience the presence of sin and the pull of sin, which appeals to our flesh and finds expression in the members of our body, which are constantly craving sin and are well-trained in committing sin. And that's why if you remember in Romans chapter six, after telling us that we're no longer slaves to sin, Paul gets down to, to, the, to the nitty-gritty about, so how does this sanctification, what does the sanctification look like? He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. The members of your body are like your hands, your feet, your ears, your eyes, your nose, your mouth. He says, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So Paul is commanding us here not to plan out ways to gratify ourselves and not even, not even think about sinning. And I learned this principle the hard way when I was in high school because by the grace of God, I was walking with him I had a passion for him, I had a burden for my unsaved classmates and trying to be a, a good witness for Christ. And so there was, I just wanted to be above reproach. I wanted to be different. I wanted to be set apart uh, to catch their attention so that they would ask, hey, what makes you different? Why are you like that? Or why are you not like us? And why don't you talk like us? And why don't you go to the parties like we do and to the keggers and all this stuff they would talk about that they did on the weekends. And so there were certain sins that I, I just knew that I, I, I shouldn't commit and, and I couldn't commit. And uh, I even told myself I would never do them. But I would find myself fantasizing about them and playing them out in my mind. And guess what? Guess what? I ended up doing some of those sins. I thought, I'll, ju I'll just think about it. I'll just kind of do it in my mind. But I'll never do it for real. Well, that's a slippery slope. And so that's the idea here, that our, our sinful flesh is always looking, always thinking about opportunities, ways to gratify itself so we can't provide it with opportunities to feed itself. We need to be, we, we need to be ruthless in dealing with temptation and sin and specifically we need to do whatever is necessary to avoid the people and places and activities and situations that tempt us to sin. Paul referred to this as the doctrine of mortification, right? Back in chapter eight, verse 13. If you're living according to the flesh, you must die, but if by the spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Matthew chapter five, Jesus said, hey, listen, if your eye caused you to sin, what do you do? Gouge it out. If your hand caused you to sin, what do you do? Cut it off. Was he really saying, literally gouge out your eye, literally cut off your hand? No. The principle was, hey, get radical in your fight against sin and remove anything in your life that has the potential to cause you to sin. In other words, we need to make it really hard for ourselves to sin. I mean, you got, we gotta really work at it if we're gonna sin. We gotta, there's a lot of things that we set up, a lot of boundaries and a lot of barriers and things that we've set up and so that may, what does this mean practically? Making no provision for the flesh in regards to his lust. It, means, it may mean you gotta throw away some stuff. You gotta pour out some stuff. You gotta smash some stuff. You gotta burn some stuff. You gotta cancel some stuff. You gotta delete some stuff. You gotta block some stuff. You gotta end a relationship. Maybe you need to drive a different way to work. You need to, maybe you need to change jobs. 
I mean, that's, I know that sounds radical, but what does this mean to make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust? Some of you may remember when we started our study in the book of Romans, I mentioned that this verse, verse 14 along with verse 13, is the passage that God used to lead the early church father Augustine, or Augustine, however you like to say it, to repent of his sinful life and submit to Christ as his Savior and Lord. This is, this is Augustine's passage right here, verses Romans 13, 13 and 14. And, and if you know his story, he lived a very, well, uh, ever since he was a, a kid, and uh, this is back in AD 386. Yeah, there was immorality back then. Uh, there was rebellious teenagers back then. There was all sorts of premarital sex back then. And, and he was into all of it. Um, in fact, he was actually living with a woman that wasn't his wife. And uh, he was a teacher in Milan, Italy, and he came under deep conviction regarding his sin as a result of, of, of the biblical preaching of a godly pastor along with the faithful prayers of a godly mother. And he happened to go into a friend's garden and he was sitting there weeping over his bondage to lust when he heard a little kid singing uh, tole lege, tole lege, which in Latin means take up and read. And again, it just so happens, right, in the province of God, an open scroll of the book of Romans was laying there and he picked it up and the first passage that caught his eye was Romans 13, 13 and 14, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. And when he read that, he got saved. He repented. He received Jesus as his Lord and Savior. He went on to become one of the most influential theologians in the history of the church. There could be a young Augustine in here this morning. That that, that describes your life, the way you're living right now. And I'm praying that God will use the same text that he used to save Augustine to save you to bring you to repentance. I know some of you haven't liked the sound of this sermon today. I know it. You know why? Because I don't like the sound of my alarm clock either. That's one of my least favorite sounds in life. When that alarm clock goes off in the morning, right? And it just grates on you. And why? Because it's, it's there to wake you up. And what do we oftentimes do? We hit the snooze. So we can sleep just a little bit longer. And I would just say this. If you go out of here this morning without doing anything with this message that you just heard, it's like you're just hitting snooze. Which means you want to keep sleeping a little bit longer. You want to keep sinning a little bit more though your damnation is nearer to you than ever before. If those of us who are saved, our salvation is nearer than it's ever been, then those who are unsaved, their damnation is nearer than it's ever been. You're closer to the day of judgment than you've ever been in than today. You say, I, you know what, I'll take my chances. It's been 2,000 years Jesus hasn't come back yet. I've still got plenty of time to do what I want, to get right with him. Well, Peter knew there would be people like you. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. And here it is. 
The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You say, yeah, Jesus hasn't come back yet. I'm gonna play my odds. Well, the reason why he hasn't come back yet is because he's waiting for you to repent. How cool is that? And it, the Bible says that it's God's patience. It's his kindness, his mercy that leads us to repentance. He could have taken you out a long time ago. He could have come back a long time ago. But he's being patient with you. Don't spurn God's patience. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this text that really just brings together so many other passages in scripture and there's just, I know, a lot to to take in this morning, but Lord, would you, by your spirit, pierce our hearts? This is a wake-up call, not just for unbelievers, but also believers. Those of us who are comfortable sitting here this morning and we need to be more committed to Christ. And so God, if Paul was this urgent, this expectant, how much more urgent and expectant should we be? And so I pray that the imminency of of Christ's return would have its intended effect on our lives and motivate us to live holy and pure lives that are pleasing to him. And Lord, I pray that you would be gracious and merciful to anyone out there who has um, been just hitting the snooze and uh, going on with their life of sin, that today would be the day of their salvation. I pray for your glory in Jesus' name, amen.